Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 6. We are studying now economic Babylon. As you might remember, in chapter 17, uh, that was religious Babylon. Religious Babylon was destroyed at the end of chapter 17, so it's no longer a, a viable entity of the tribulation. And so what we have now is the other side of the coin, the second Babylon. Uh, for the fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. We have two Babylons, two parts of Babylon. And we're looking now at, at that. Uh, before we begin, let's take a couple moments or a few moments for silent prayer to get ourselves ready, ready to study God's Word. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Father, uh, it's amazing how you have let things go this far, but we know that you have some other, some other souls in mind that need to accept your Son as, as their Savior. And so, Father, I pray the Holy Spirit would work on them. I pray the body of Christ would be filled up and the timing would be right for us to hear the trumpet sound for you to call us all home. Father, we thank you for what you have laid in front of us today. We ask the Holy Spirit be our real teacher and uh, show us indeed things to come. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're at Revelation 18.6, Economic Babylon. And we're, we're looking at them. I'm going to read quickly the first five verses, which says, After these things I saw another angel coming down out of the heaven. Now, after these things, again, the destruction of the Babylon of Revelation 17. Having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Now, this connects us to the, to the angel of Revelation 14.8, where the three angels are all clustered together as a topical study. So this connects us to that. He cried out with a mighty, mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now she has become a dwelling place of demons and a haunt of every category of unclean spirit. That's people, that's demons who encourage the ritual defilement. Defilement of the soul by means of ritual, either through incantations, through um, uh, taking various uh, rituals that even the church would use and turning them into things they're not. And it says, a haunt of every category of unclean and despicable carrion birds. Certain birds were declared off limits. It says, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the anger of her fornication. Uh, it's a very interesting word, thumos, used there for anger. And that uh, oftentimes when people are involved in that, it's because they're mad at God or somebody else. And it creates, and that's where they get the word passion that comes along with it, because anger is a passion. So that's where these two words intermesh with each other. But literally, it says anger, and that's how it's used throughout the book of Revelation. And the kings of the earth have fornicated with her. They've exchanged something that has value for something and no value. They have traded their honor. They have traded their integrity, everything. They've sold their souls for the love of money. And the international merchants of the earth have become rich by the power of her arrogant luxury. Now, what is this en entity like? Uh, the rest of the chapter, we're going to get a description of it. 
It is going to pull together passages from Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah 21, Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50, Jeremiah 51. It's going to pull together a lot of passages and give us a summary of what this entity is like. Verse 4 said, I heard another voice from the heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Now, it's not hard to figure out whose voice this is. Come out of her, my people. That should have actually been capitalized. That you may not fellowship with her sins, and that you may not receive of her plagues. So what he does is give the righteous an opportunity to exit. This exhortation, this command, is found in multiple passages in the Old Testament, which we looked at last week. It says, For her sins have been cemented together as high as the heaven. The word kalao there is a word that means to glue something together, to put it together by means of cement. And uh, piled up is not quite do it justice, but it means that these things have, have uh, indeed come together. They've reached into heaven. Reminds us of what? The flood of Noah reminds us of what? Sodom and Gomorrah reminds us of various things where the sins that are, that are not repented of and left alone, they just keep piling up as high as the heaven. And when it says that, it's saying that it's time for judgment. The Lord has gone as far as He can. He has let these go as long as He can. And He is getting ready to bring about judgment. It says, And the God has remembered her crimes. She has violated the laws of God. Now, verse 6, where we left off, you all here is a plural, and it means the agents of judgment. Who has he picked out to be the agents of judgment? We know that is the king of the north from other passages with the king of the north allies. That would be Turkey and, and some of those groups in there. Pay her back. This is the word apodidomy. It's an imperative. It's an aorist tense used 48 times. And it means pay her back, pay something back in the sense of rewarding. Word literally, didomi means to give, apo means from. And uh, pay her back. So it's coming from God's righteousness that he has turned them loose to execute his judgment. God has frequently done that. Use, let another nation, which is, which is evil, bring discipline on another one. Evil is getting to judge evil. Pay her back even as she has paid. And give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. Now the judgment is for her thievery. Documented by the Mosaic law. When you start finding a payback double... Exodus 22.4 If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So that's really a practical way of doing things. You don't need a whole lot of jails, do you? If someone steals from you and they steal a donkey to, to be exonerated or redeemed, you have to pay two donkeys back. Now, if you know that's the penalty, and that's a pretty straightforward penalty, then you might be actually deterred from doing that. If you did not have the means to repay, then you became a servant of that individual until that property was repaid in double. 
Exodus 22, 7, if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, it's stolen from the man's house. If the thief is caught, he shall pay double. Exodus 22, 9, for every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, donkey, or sheep, or clothing, or any lost thing which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So if you accuse somebody of, of stealing something and the judges say, no, he didn't steal it, then you get to pay double. That's, that's, that would empty a lot of courts, wouldn't it? Make a lot of attorneys very unhappy because they wouldn't have anything to argue. It's a pretty simple, straightforward deal. An equal amount of legitimately gained wealth is lost. If you gain something illegitimately, then what you may have gained legitimately has to be matched. You have to return what was taken and match that amount. That's what pay her back double is all about. So based on the extent of judgment, the illegitimately gained wealth of the nation will meet or exceed 50% of the national income. Pay her back double, because it's going to leave her devastated. Pay her back double. Is there illegitimately gained wealth going on now? I'm sure there is, but you know, I don't think the accountants can figure all this out. But there is certainly a lot of of wealth that is wrongly gained. When you have um, <laughs> illegal drugs floating around the streets, think of that multi-billion dollar industry that's uh, floating around the streets. And, and is it being stopped and judged? Not hardly. Divine permission has been given to earthly agents to execute this judgment. It's interesting, the payer back, or render as some say, is an aorist tense. usually looks at a point of time with everything that goes to it. The active says that you initiate it, which we know is the king of the north. And the imperative says, go ahead and get it done. This nation has used her prosperity. This Babylon... This economic Babylon has used her prosperity for evil and has rendered evil to those loyal to her. Because that's what... What has she done? She has been a harlot. That is illegitimately gained wealth. That is not righteous in any sense of the word. So it's wrongly gained wealth. What has she done? What else is the problem? Her international merchants are the great people of the earth. Now, has that happened in history past? And the answer is, yes, it has. But it's never happened to the degree that it is going on right now in the United States of America. To whom much is entrusted, much is required. Principle Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, verse 7 is the judgment on her arrogance and her idolatry. It says, to the degree. This is interesting because it's a plural. It's a neuter plural of the word hasos. And they translate it as a singular, but it's a plural. To the degrees. There are varying degrees to be evaluated. To the degrees that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. That's the word we've seen a couple times already. Strainiao is the word. It's uh, 
This is the verb form of the noun used in 18.3. And the best way I see to translate that is arrogant luxury. It's luxury that is an elitist type of attitude. It is a luxury that is, uh, I have so many things, therefore I am so much better than you. People often look at that and they, it, it's, it's interesting that no matter how much or how little you may have, this can be the case. I've seen street vendors in different parts of the world that their cart is bigger than the cart next door and there's just an arrogance in their eyes about what they have as compared to their neighbor next door. But then you start multiplying it on a global scale with the not just the rich but the super rich uh, of the last days talked about in James 5. And then you got a big problem to the degree is that she glorified herself and lived in arrogant luxury to the same degree give her torment basanismos is the word used there it's a physical torment that is uh, looking at and it's a you all it's a plural looking at the fact there are multiple people connected in with the king of the north that'll be involved in this give her torment and mourning and then why? Now, this is an important phrase here. For, she says, the for there is explanatory. Why does she do torment and mourning? She says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never see mourning. Now, this is a nation, this economic Babylon that has magnified itself actually above God. The judgments on the arrogance and idolatry of the entity. Now, when you start looking at idolatry and you, things that can become idols, you look at the four major temptations of man and you realize when people can grab those, fame, fortune, power, and pleasure, and turn them into an idol. It's interesting. Now we even promote it. We have shows called American Idol. We're actually looking for other people. How are they done? People, places, things, and events. These things become idols when they are put in front of the living God. It's the judgment. I just said it here on the arrogance and the idolatry of this entity. This entity becomes a materialistic pantheist. Meaning that she has glorified herself as a god. Uh, other passages we've looked at in our systematic study, she has a Messiah complex. She thinks she can solve any problem. And she's proclaiming the fact that she controls what she doesn't. Look at this. I said as a queen, I'm not a widow. It's a statement of who I am and will never see mourning. And guess what? That's a statement of, of arrogance. She claims to control things she can't control. Kind of sounds like some weather people, doesn't it? We're going to bring you sunny weather on Monday. No, the Almighty is the one that sends those things. You're just a reporter. You are not a creator. But when that becomes the attitude of people... And I know it figures of speech, and I'm not judging any of the weather people particularly on it. I just don't like to hear it. I don't like to hear them say, we're going to bring you rain, or we're going to bring you thunderstorms. They're not bringing me anything. And that 
we know for sure. The judgment is physical and mental. What does it say? Torment. Basanismas. A word like being stung of a scorpion. A word that is like it's too hot. There's all type of different uh, torment. And no mourning. That's a mental thing. Now, <clears throat> Isaiah 13, verse 6 and 9, 6 through 9, in the oracle concerning Babylon. This is not a fulfilled prophecy in Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, 6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, I find that interesting. Isaiah is 800 years before Christ. So if you looked at the day of the Lord as the first advent, it's still a long way off, and he says it's near. I've been able to have some discussions lately with pastors talking about the imminency of the rapture and when it's due, and, and uh, you know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that it's near. He kind of thinks the rapture is going to happen at any point in history, and then I, I, I asked the question. I said, we go back through the Old Testament, it says the same thing. It wasn't near. So maybe we're understanding those words incorrectly. Meaning that those words indicate that he's coming back without any unnecessary delay. If the day of the Lord is near, how's it near? It's near spiritually because he's just given more information on it. A better ability to to identify it when it happens. More details that fit into the narrative. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, Isaiah says. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. This is the oracle about Babylon, remember? And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They'll writhe like a woman in labor. They'll look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. And you notice that even this passage talks about no inhabitants. Exterminate means to get rid of the what? Its sinners from it. Now who all's a sinner? Everybody. Okay? So, and what, what are other passages say? Get out of her. Come out of her, my people. We just saw it. The farther this entity descends into evil, the more arrogant she becomes. Here's Isaiah 47, verses 7 and 8. See, these passages, uh, it's really hard to deny, if you read Revelation 18, if you know anything about the Bible, it's hard to deny that they're not connected back to these passages. Isaiah 47, 7, Yet you said, I shall be a queen forever. Does that sound familiar? I shall be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one. Isn't this the second part of the great harlot, the second great harlot that is there, you sensual one? Who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there's no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come on you suddenly in one day. We're going to see this statement one day, multiple times. In one day, loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure. 
in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. You felt secure in your wickedness, and you said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you. For you've said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Talk about connected to this passage. Isaiah 47, 800 years before Christ. Jeremiah 50, verse 31-32. See, here is 300 years after Isaiah wrote, another prophet Jeremiah wrote, also about Babylon, a prophetical economic Babylon. 50-31, Behold, I am against you, O arrogant one, declares the Lord God of the armies, for your day has come, the time when I shall punish you. The arrogant one will stumble and fall with no one to raise him up. And I shall set fire to all of his cities and I will devour all of his environs. environment. See, these are pretty straightforward prophecies. There will be a destruction of a future Babylon, future to historical Babylon. See, because Babylon was not in power when Isaiah wrote Assyria was. But here, uh, Assyria is defeated by Babylon, comes into power. When Jeremiah writes, the Babylonians have taken the Jews captive and carried them back to Babylon. That's what has happened. And here are two prophecies, 300 years apart, that both deal with the destruction of Babylon. And it cannot be, again, historical Babylon. We're going to see further proof of that as we go through this chapter. The arrogance comes from vast human knowledge. We just read Isaiah 47, 10. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have deluded you. A vast human knowledge prophesied by Daniel. In Daniel 12, 4, many will come and go and knowledge will increase greatly. Daniel, it's not for me to give you the answer to these prophecies is what the angel told to Daniel. The national conscience rejects the idea of personal destruction because it thinks it's so smart it can charm anything away use diplomacy to get rid of things it thinks it can get rid of it now it could be from their safety measures that they have taken I mean after all isn't there a way to knock missiles out of the sky these flaming arrows that are going to come in and smash people into pieces well if you can knock them out of the sky uh, and are pretty good at it, then you think, well, maybe uh, I can knock them out of the sky. How about treaties? The treaties they make with people. We hold up and say, well, we're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and we're all going to shake hands and sing Kumbaya. It never works. What about gloves and masks? Distancing? We can save ourselves is the whole attitude of this this entity. They're deluded by an incorrect evaluation of their past history and their Messiah complex. The nation, see, didn't start off this way. The nation started off as a golden cup in the hand of the Lord that blessed and touched and prospered peoples from all over the earth. But then, 
Its people got greedy. Its people got selfish and got self-centered. And that is always destructive to a nation. The New Age movement promotes glorification of self, which this entity has embraced. Now, the New Age movement is uh, is Hinduism in a three-piece three suit. It's come over to the United States. But you look at this entity, and what do you have? First of all, they don't hold to a, a one God anymore. There are some that do. Some get saved after the rapture. But as a nation, the Christians are gone at the rapture. And what do you have left? You have atheists whose religion is called secular humanism, believe man is the highest creature that there is. And you have Hinduism that is invaded that takes us to, well, everybody's a god. If you're not one yet, you can be. Heard uh, one person say, well, I used to not believe in God till I became one. Actually, it was said of somebody else, but I'll leave that alone if I can. Verse 8. What type of judgment? And the end of the announcements. It says, for this reason, in one day. Now, it's interesting the way the Greek does things. And the more you learn about Greek, the more you know why God chose to inscripturate the New Testament in this language. Because there's many things it it could say. uh, There's many ways to say different things. But yet, when it does say it, it gets real precise. It could have said... For in run, one reason, in a day, see that little A in there, but you see one? Now, it doesn't do that every time. The translators are not consistent, so you have to look at it every time you run into it. But the number is stated here. One day. It could have said just any old day along the, along the way, and then you'd have wondered whether, it's a, whether it is a 24-hour day it's talking about or not. But it says one day. It's the numeral that is put there with a mirror, the word for day. So, for this reason, in one day, her plagues, her plague, will come. The word come there is there's a thousand. There's not a thousand. That's exaggeration. There's a lot of different words for come and go. This is the word heiko, and it means arrive. It's not just the process of, of going somewhere. It is the arrival that is there. Her plagues will arrive. Pestilence. That's actually thanatos, which is the word death. That's the common word translated death throughout the throughout the New Testament. So when it says pestilence, I don't know why they translated it that way. It is thanatos. It is death. And mourning, which is penthos, it's the word for sorrow. And famine, which is limos, which is um, used 12 times, only twice in Revelation. In chapter 6, verse 8, it was part of the uh, pale horse judgments, bring, bring this uh, famine. It's also found in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, where those things are mentioned, that there will be famine in the last days. And famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Future tense is prophetic, is going to happen. Passive, burned by an outside source. Indicative, historical fact. Katakayo is the word that is used. 
And again, kaio means to burn, and kata means utterly burn, totally burn it down. It's the same word used in Second Peter 3 for the burning up of the old heavens and earth and when the elements heat, this word that's used, used there. She will be burned up with fire, utterly burned up is how I translate it. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. The word strong here is iskaros, and it's a physical strength. So it's not just that he's strong of will. Or, or what this is, uh, this is emphasis on his omnipotence, his applied omnipotence. Now, the arrogance of this enemy is the primary basis for the swiftness and the totality of the destruction. So if you start asking why is God going to destroy this golden cup in his hand at one time, it's because she got arrogant. What happened to Satan? I will be like the Most High. Now, sounds like they become their own God, at least a God in their own mind. And he says, no, you're not. I'm going to take you out. I sit as a queen. I shall be here forever. I shall never know the loss of children. You don't control that. I mean, Ecclesiastes 3 says a time to live and a time to die. The rest of the things in that list, you have decisions over. A time for peace, a time for war. Huh. Those things, time to be born, a time to die, you don't. Jesus Christ made the decision that is ultimately behind the judgment, although he is not the agent of the destruction. See all that string of verses there, Jeremiah 51? Well, 51.11, we're going we're gonna to look at some of them. Just go ahead and jump there to 51 because we've got a bunch of verses in this chapter. Jeremiah 51.11. Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has aroused the spirit of the kings of the Medes. The Medes were the archers in Cyrus's army, the Persian, because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. Now, historical Babylon, you might remember, it's recorded when the Persians overtook the Babylonians in the book of Daniel. It's that's not the only place in ancient history. There wasn't anything destroyed in the city. They went in under the walls of the city and they came up and they took out the uh, king. So, uh, the Babylonian king. So, because his purpose is against Babylon to destroy it. It's the vengeance of the Lord. Vengeance for his temple. Lift up a signal against the walls of Babylon. Post a strong guard. Station sentries. Place men in ambush, for the Lord is both purpose and perform what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. When he gets ready to pour out this judgment, it is total and complete. 51.24 I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. They become anti-Semitic clearly after the rapture. Jeremiah 51.34 Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to plead your case and exact full vengeance for you. I shall dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. Drying up her sea 
means that she's not going to have any more commerce by means of the ocean, which this Babylon does does have. But notice the word sea there that is that is used, the yom that is involved, not the nahar, which is a river. An historical Babylon sets on a nahar, not on a yom. Jeremiah fifty one forty four, and I shall punish Bel and Babylon. I shall make what he has swallowed come out of his mouth, and the nations will no longer stream to him. As we've learned about this economic Babylon, it's made up from people from all over the earth. It is the only nation in the history of the world to fulfill that to such a degree. Even the wall of Babylon has fallen down. The wall is the protector. Whatever you put up to protect you, that you said, I will never be hurt, it's gone. Jeremiah 51, 52. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall punish her idols. And the mortally wounded will groan throughout her land. Jeremiah 51, 55. For the Lord is going to destroy Babylon. He will make her loud noise vanish from her. And their waves will roar like many waters. The tumult of their voices sounds forth. For the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon. And her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shadowed. For the Lord is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. That kind of gives an idea when it says capture that this entity has armies in different parts of the world and whenever whenever the, the mainland goes down, their armies become prisoners of war. Now, the king of the north is going to be the agent. See, the Lord gave the approval for this agent to go and destroy Babylon. Isaiah 13 makes that statement. Isaiah, the oracle of the wilderness by the sea. And it says, I have commanded my consecrated ones. I've even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones to execute my anger. Now in verse 17 of Isaiah 13, Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. When it is destroyed, it is totally, utterly, completely destroyed with no inhabitant left in it. It will never be inhabited. Look at these direct statements never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. As a people that want to rebuild historical Babylon, they're going to have to have a change of topography, and unlike anything even the flood would, would do. Because the, the Euphrates River survived the flood of Noah. Now, to make it surrounded by many waters, that's a problem. Also, when you have, it's the, uh, Babylon is also the land of Assyria. And we know Assyria will be a great nation in the Millennial Kingdom. So people will be inhabiting uh, that. Nor will shepherds like Jeremiah 50 verse 9. For behold, I'm going to rouse up, arouse and bring up against Babylon a horde of great nations. 
a horde of great nations from the land of the north. Now, when you measure, when you start looking at locations, you have to look at their relationship to Jerusalem and Israel. That's the way, that's the, way the biblical uh, directions are, are analyzed. And they will draw up their battle lines against her. From there, she will be taken captive. From there is the land of the north. No nation has ever been taken captive before without its invaders not leaving their land. Their arrows will be like an expert warrior who does not return empty-handed. Jeremiah fifty forty one. Behold a people coming from the north, a great nation. Many kings will be aroused from the remote parts of the earth. Jeremiah 51, 1. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to rouse against Babylon and against the inhabitants of Lebkamai, the spirit of a destroyer. And I shall dispatch foreigners to Babylon. They may winnow her, devastate her land. For on every side they will be opposed to her in the day of calamity. When this one day occurs, king of the north and allies of the king of the north is what's going to take out this entity and never leave their own land. That is the literal description we are getting from the biblical narrative. All are going to die. Jeremiah 50, look at these passages, six of them cited there. Jeremiah 50, verse 13, Because of the indignation of the Lord, she will not be inhabited. She'll be completely desolate. Everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified and will hiss because of her wounds. Now we're going to see the same thing in Revelation 18. This is Old Testament, 2,500 years ago. 5021, against the land of Marathiam, go up against it, against the inhabitants of Bichad, slay and utterly destroy her, and do according to all I've commanded you. 5026, come to her from the farthest border, open up her barns, pile her up like heaps, utterly destroyed, destroy her, let nothing be left to her. 5029, summon many against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, encamp against her on every side, let there be no escape, repay her according to her work, according to all she has done, so do to her. Why? For she has become arrogant against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Here again in Jeremiah 50, we have this arrogance that she has, the arrogance and idolatry of this nation. 50.39, the desert creatures will live there along with the jackals. What will be left? There won't be any people left. Ostriches live in it, never again be inhabited or dwelt in from generation to generation, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, declares the Lord. No man will live there, nor any son of man reside in it. All are going to experience <coughs> sorrow before they die. Jeremiah 50, verse 43. The resultant famine will extend to the rest of the earth. Because to unload, because we're going to see stuff that looks like nuclear devastation. And we're going to, that's, that's the description that we are getting. That will affect the entire earth if they take out an entire entity the size of the United States by means of nuclear weapons. The total burning 
indicates it'll be as devastating as a nuclear holocaust. And if you're just looking at these, back during the time of Isaiah, didn't have a clue what this was. What we do know, some of the prophets saw a vision and made them sick. They couldn't even sleep at night because of what they had what they had seen. Now, verse 9, how do the world leaders react to this? And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality, it says literally, the ones having fornicated, understanding with her, her is one of the harlots, of Revelation 17, of immorality, of fornications, the word pornuo, and lives sensuously with her. This is this strania-o word. This is the word that's, that's a noun used once, the verb used twice. Uh, this particular word is the word we translated arrogant luxury. We'll weep. Clio. They're going to let out a loud wail. It sounds like the military turns against the industrial complex at this point in time. And they basically say we're going to take her out because the, the merchants are really upset over this. The military says we're going to do it. It says they're going to wail. They're going to they're going to weep, let out a very loud uh, wail, and lament. This is the word "copto" that's used. Future tense. It's interesting. Word "copto" is a word means to cut, like branches of a tree, or to cut by a blow. Uh, in the middle voice, like we have here, it actually means to beat one's chest out of mourning and anger and and um, sorrow. And lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now the loss of this prostitute brings almost universal mourning. Once again, notice this affects the world and not just a small part of it. When this happens, merchants from all over the world are affected by this. So it's not just a localized thing. It's, it is global. The destruction, destruction described that occurs in one literal day requires a technology far beyond that of the first century. They didn't have anything like this. It could not have been accomplished. It's clearly a judgment by fire. And it says, standing at a distance. Macrothan is the word 14 times, mean a far distance. It's uh, visible, but it's not close by. That's what the word means. In other words, they're able to see it, but they're not next to it. Uh, it's also used in verse 15 and 17 in this chapter, saying that they stood at a distance. They couldn't get close to her because of the fear of her torment. Saying, Woe, woe. The great city... Babylon, the strong city, Iskaros, physically strong. And frequently, a city is used to denote a nation. It's been a figure of speech for as far back as anybody can remember. For in one hour, your judgment has come. I actually heard this taught when I was probably 12 years old, 11, 12 years old in the church I was in. A guy came through and he said that, that this Babylon was New York City because it was the center of where the merchants were. And he was making a case for doing that. I, I didn't hear it again till mid-70s. 
uh, that that this could possibly be it. But I heard this taught back in the. When would that be? <laughs> Early sixties, <laughs> when I when I first heard this, I didn't pay a lot of attention when I was twelve years old. Uh, but this is one of the messages from a traveling evangelist that uh, that I heard, and uh, it. Uh, Needless to say, it stuck stuck with me. New York City. Well, that is the center of where things are. And what do you get to look at when you come wheeling into New York City by ship? You get to see the Statue of Liberty. I sit as a queen. She have a crown on her head. Hmm. Quite interesting. Now look at this. For in one hour. We had one day with a numeral one before. In one hour, your judgment has come. The context is said in 18.8, one literal day, the number one. Now we have in one hour. See, this is a literal hour. It's not simply a time of testing like chapter 3, verse 10, because the context is different. I will protect you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole earth. It's a different context back then. But here, we have a new context established by the use of one day with the numeral, and now it says one hour. So it's one 60-minute time frame in one day. So, (coughs) we learn that Prophetical Babylon is unapproachable by man after the destruction. We've seen these passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Prophetical Babylon is destroyed and mankind, humanity, cannot approach it even. It occurs much earlier in the tribulation. It's not after the six bowl judgments. It's not the last thing just before the second advent that this entity is destroyed. Because... If it were simply a loss of economic wealth, um, don't you think 100-pound hailstones, torture by demons, nova of the sun would be much more pressing problems than mourning the loss of money? Okay, so it's happened earlier back in the in the timetable. The two woes are probably for the economic loss and the military protection this entity offered. I said as a queen, you're not going to touch me. I will never be a widow. This entity had a, had a strong Iskaros military presence. And thinking that, you know, what did the Lord tell the Jews all this time? Put no trust in your wall cities. You put your trust in the Lord, not in the fortresses made by men. Of course, Patton said a wall city was a tribute to man's stupidity. You have to be out moving around to protect yourself. The literal hour of 60 minutes demands weapons not in existence in the ancient world. And we're just reading what it says here. The sequence of events, first angel, 14.6. What is it? Gives the eternal gospel to the whole world. The seal judgments, chapter 6. They're opened up, general things that go on throughout the tribulation. A massive peace movement that goes with it. Death, famine that that happens. The second angel blows its trumpet. That is fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. I think that's when you get, get out of her, my people, that is there. Revelation 17. Hmm. Revelation 17, the remnant 
of of unbelieving Roman Catholicism didn't get raptured out of there, they're going to argue with uh, the Antichrist who's proclaiming himself to be a god because they can't permit that. That will not happen. So he'll destroy them. Religious Babylon is destroyed, chapter 17. Economic Babylon is destroyed, chapter 18. The third angel, along about the same time, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't take the mark of the beast. That's trying to put the timing together within that timeline uh, that you are able to look at. Verse 11 is going to pick up the reaction of the merchants. How are they going to respond? And you get to see that these are the guys that, that <laughs> if it had been left to them, it wouldn't have happened. Why? Because they fornicated with the kings of the earth and the international merchants were the great people of the earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your mercy, your love, your grace. Thank you for all your blessings, all your tests. Father, thank you for this information. And I do pray that we would <coughs> recognize the times in, in which we live, that we would be attuned to it, not be alarmed by it, but indeed be listening for the trumpet. May we be found ready when that trumpet sounds. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.